Hey, good morning, everybody. Hey, it's good to see you here today. Man, um, Merry Christmas, by the way. Can you believe that like uh, about a week from now uh, will be uh, Christmas? It is crazy. I feel like it snuck up on us. We weren't even ready for it, and it's here. And so uh, Merry Christmas to you. Excited about uh, the few days ahead that we have. Speaking of that, next Sunday... Um, is, is here at the bridge for 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. It won't be our traditional um, worship gathering. It will be Christmas at the bridge um, next Sunday. So um, if you've been here for the past year or two, that you, uh, you'll remember that Christmas at the bridge is a really fun time. It's a, we do a big family-friendly kind of musical, theatrical program with monologues and all sorts of fun Christmas stuff. And so that's going to be happening next Sunday. Um, bridge Kids will be operational for, I believe, four ages four and under. Um, but we'll be here next Sunday. Um, if you've got family in town, you've got friends in town, um, invite them to come and, and show up. We won't be doing anything officially on Christmas Eve. And so Sunday is kind of, we're putting all of our eggs in that basket. Uh, basket. We'll be here next Sunday for Christmas um, at the bridge. And then the final uh, Sunday, the final Sunday of um, the year as we do, which is our custom, we don't hold worship gatherings on the final Sunday of the year, and so then we will be back on the first Sunday, which I believe is January the 6th, okay? And so um, today, what that means for today is that today is my official um, last sermon of 2018, um, and this is our, our, our official last um, normal traditional worship gathering for 2018. And so this is um, quite an emotional uh, little moment and day for me. And so I'm excited here. And as I've told you before, um, um, you, 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 gotta, um, you need to help your preacher out, okay? Um, I've mentioned this before, but um, everybody needs encouragement, right? I need encouragement too, so I don't know if I'm doing good or if I'm doing bad unless you help me out, unless you let me know, okay? So every now and then you got to say amen. Everybody say amen. 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 All right. And if you, maybe you want to go a little bit step further than that, you can say preach it. Somebody say preach it. Amen. Preach it. All right. And then you, get, you can take it a step further. You can say, come on. Come on. And then you, you preaching real good. Um, you can even you say that. And hey, and if it, get, if it gets real, real good, you can even stand up and start clapping. And then we know that we know that the Lord is we know that the Lord is in the house if somebody does that today. Um, no, but I'm, I'm excited to preach today. I'm encouraged about preaching. Um, and before I dive in, I just want to say one more thing about Christmas for the City. Um, I'm so encouraged by um, a Christmas for the City and our end-of-the-year giving initiative towards uh, for the city, for the nation, and for the world. And um, we're believing God to reach our goal of $92,600. Um, but the only way that that happens is if everybody participates and everybody jumps in. And so um, we're super encouraged so far by um, what you've already given and contributed, but I want to encourage you. Uh, some of you have made a commitment but haven't yet made your contribution to Christmas for the city, and you have to make a contribution, okay? Your commitment don't count because your commitment doesn't hit the bank account, all right? And so we need your contribution for Christmas for the city, and I know that some, probably upwards of maybe half of you have, have made a commitment but haven't yet made your contribution, so encourage you to make your contribution. Um, and then if, if you're brand new to this, you can go online, you can go onto our website and uh, find Christmas at the Bridge and find out everything that we're talking about for this. would love you to, for you to participate and to be a part of this radical initiative that we do at the end of the year, okay? So you all ready to jump in? All right, let's jump in. If you've got a Bible, I want you to open it to Luke chapter 1 in the New Testament. Luke chapter 1, and we are going to be concluding our series, Rejoice, um, as we look at um, the Christmas story, the Advent story of Jesus Christ himself coming into human history, and we're looking at his story specifically through the lens and through the story of Mary, which is Jesus' mother, and the road that she walked and the journey that she went in as she was a significant part of the Christmas story, as you know, and we're looking at um, 
this story from her lens and from her vantage point and why she would come to a place where she could rejoice even in her life and even in her situations when she realized and understood what it was that the Lord was doing in and through her. You know, in this season, we think about Advent, and we think about Christmas, and we think about incarnation. There's a um, beautiful parable that I want to read to you that comes from um, Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher, who said this in his parable, The King and His Maiden. I think it tees it up well for us today. He says, Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power, no one dared breathe the word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And I know that I just pictured, I just came up in your imagination right there when you heard that, but this kind of king. And yet, this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden who lived in a poor village in his kingdom. How could he declare his love for her? For her? In an odd sort of way, his kingliness tied his hands. If if he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly? Or, or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know for sure? And if he rode to her forest... Uh, cottage, her forest cottage in a royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He would not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover and an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she was a humble maiden and let love, let shared love cross the gulf between them. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal. The king, convinced he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, Resolved to descend to her, and clothed as a beggar, he approached her cottage with a worn cloak fluttering loose about him. But this was not just a disguise. The king took on a totally new identity. He renounced his throne to declare his love and to win hers. Don't you love that <clears throat> today? I mean, in, it just gives us a... A picture of this king that's stepping down in order to demonstrate his love for this maiden. You know, the, the degree to which one feels loved is always proportionate to the degree of sacrifice of one's lover. The degree to, one, the degree to, to which one feels loved is always in proportion to the degree of sacrifice of one's lover. In this moment, you're supposed to be thinking of your lover. You're supposed to be thinking of your spouse thinking about the love that you share and trying to measure up the degree of sacrifice that you share for your loved one. You know, we feel love and we experience love when the person in which we love reciprocates love for us by taking on sacrifice in order to love us. You know that you are loved when someone would go to great extent to sacrifice themselves or something about them in order to demonstrate their love for you. You ever had to sacrifice something in order to demonstrate love for somebody that you cared about? Sacrifice maybe what other people thought about you, what other people said about you, what your um, future in-laws think about you or would say about you. I think, of, I think about this for some of our um, interracial couples that are a part of our church who would go to great lengths and incur, incur great um, accusation oftentimes 
because of their love for someone else and would have to take on great sacrifice in order to demonstrate great love to the person in which they love. You know, you feel loved by the degree of sacrifice that your lover is willing to give for you. It's about the cost. It's about the cost. And for some of you, you don't feel very loved today because someone has never gone to great cost for you and taken on great cost for you. But here's the beauty of the Christmas story, and here's the beauty of Advent, is that, that God himself would incur the greatest cost in the history of the world in order to love you. That he would take on the greatest sacrifice in order for you to feel loved and for you to understand his love. And this is where we pick up the story today. Mary, who would become the mother of Jesus, she finds herself, to remind you of the context, minding her own business, and an angel shows up in her life and gives her an assignment and tells her that she is going to give birth to God, to God the Son. Anybody want that job? And Mary finds herself with this assignment, and upon hearing this, has to determine how she will respond to the assignment and how she will respond to the circumstance and the situation in which she finds herself. And that's what we've been walking through for the past couple of weeks. And then we see this, the story picks up again in Luke chapter 1, verse 39. It says this, in those days, Mary arose. This is after the angel had left. She arose and went with haste, which means she got her boogie on. She went fast. She went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Um, in order to break down the story for you um, real quickly, Mary is in a certain region, in a certain town. She leaves that and vacates, retreats that town in order to go to somewhere else where she knows her cousin Elizabeth is, and she goes and she meets Elizabeth. Now, who is Elizabeth and Zechariah? Um, to help you real briefly, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 1 with uh, Luke's gospel in Luke chapter one, we see that Zechariah is a priest in the temple of God and he's performing priestly duties and he and his wife Elizabeth are uh, quite older and they're several generations along and they're past the age of childbearing and they have been pronounced by, I guess, everyone that they are barren. They don't have the ability to have a child, but they've been praying and praying and asking God for, um, for a child and they've had um, infertility for years and years. And then one day, uh, God finally answers their prayer. Um, they're older in age, but an angel shows up into the temple one day with Zechariah. Zechariah meets an angel, and the angel says, God is going to give you a child. Now, Zechariah, though he is a good priest and though he's a good pastor, at this moment he actually doubts the Lord. And he says, I don't understand how this could be. I don't understand that this would be true of my life. Don't you understand that my wife, she is barren? Well, because he doubted the assignment of the Lord and the promise of God in his life, the angel said, well, you will no longer be able to speak until the child is born. <laughs> It's kind of hard to be a pastor without being able to speak for a few months, and he, he can't speak. And so um, he, he walks out of the temple, and everybody's like, wow, what happened to you, man? Something, something's on your face. And he tries to communicate to them what he just experienced, and he doesn't have the ability to communicate it. And so he just has to write it out and has to write what has happened. And the angel says that, hey, your child who's going to be born, his name is going to be John. You're going to name him John. He's going to be the cousin of the forthcoming anointed one, Messiah, the Son of God, the King himself. And John is going to prepare the way for him. And Zechariah gets this this news, and Elizabeth gets this news, and they're overjoyed about um, their birth of their child, and then they get even, not only are they um, get a child, but then this child's going to have a specific assignment on his life, and he's going to be the forerunner of Jesus who has come, the anointed one, the coming uh, Messiah, and Elizabeth, she, uh, she retreats, and she goes for a few months, and this is where we find ourselves. She is in retreat, and then Mary shows up 
uh, into the situation um, to join her. It says in the hill country um, away um, to a town of Judah and they are together um, as they are both uh, pregnant and during their uh, few months before they will bear their children. And this is what the story says in verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, Mary shows up on the front door, knock, 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 it's your cousin Mary. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, this is John and Elizabeth, leaped in her womb. Any of you mothers ever had a baby? You had your baby move in the womb? Sometimes it's often painful. It's like, oh, would you stop moving, as my wife has said. Here in this moment, uh, John, um, this baby, he like uh, does a somersault in Mary's uh, womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 42, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you, speaking to Mary, she rejoices, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And, this, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She's just blown away. She's filled with joy. Verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Um, Elizabeth um, is in a, she's in close proximity to Mary. Mary is pregnant. Elizabeth is pregnant. They first come into close contact to one another. And John leaps in his womb. It says the Holy Spirit fills John. She's, Elizabeth is filled and John is filled with the Holy Spirit even from his womb. And the babies, uh, they leap for joy. And here we have Jesus and his forerunner, his cousin, John the Baptist, they meet for the very first time out in the hill country in this little home together. And God already begins to do a work in their life, which he will unfold the story of the gospel. And it says that the Holy Spirit filled them. And we've seen this even over the past couple of weeks. It's that the Holy Spirit is the one who's, who's moving and is working. This is God, his spirit himself, that's moving and working in and through them. And these women are filled with joy that you would think that they would be fearful. You think that they would be overwhelmed. You think that they would be freaking out, but they're filled with um, joy from this moment. And I want to park here for just, before we go any further on the story, and I just want you to think about something with me for just um, a few moments. Mary shows up. Elizabeth is there. Mary is present. I'm sorry, pregnant rather. Elizabeth is, is pregnant. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. Mary is pregnant with God. I, have you ever stopped to think long and hard um, about what we believe? We believe that God, the Son, Jesus Christ, became a fetus and entered humanity, entered Mary's womb to be born as a man. Does anybody else think that's a little bizarre? <laughs> Ever stop to think about the things that we believe? Now, if you're, you're here and you're like, I'm not a Christian here today, Ethan, and I'm checking this out. I come with a friend, come with a family member. This is, uh, way, this is way above my head. And what you people believe is crazy. I agree with you, all right? I agree with you. It, it is. It's, it's bizarre. But here's, here's the beauty of Christianity. When you become a Christian and when you walk out Christianity, you begin to recognize that all of life is bizarre, that all of life is crazy, that we are even here is crazy, that we even have breath in our lungs is crazy, that it's bizarre, that there are stars and galaxies and, I mean, our universe is filled with uh, trillions upon trillions of stars and galaxies. It's all bizarre. 
I mean, this is all crazy. And when you become a Christian and you begin to grow in your faith, you begin to recognize that all of life is a miracle, that everything is a miracle, that we are even here today is a miracle. And then you begin to recognize that God is actually a miracle-working God and that everything that God does essentially is a, is a miracle. It's miraculous. It's, and then you begin to understand that we live in the natural world, but we also live in the supernatural world. And then that allows us to recognize and to believe and to be able to see the things that God does and the story that God is unfolding. And the response to that and the response to what God is and to who he is, it's, it's always a response of faith. It means that even when you can't see it, you believe. And even when it may not make sense and it doesn't add up on a spreadsheet that there's something in you that tells you that it's true and it's faith and then we believe and then we respond to that. Can I get an amen in the house today? It's faith. It's it's believing, it's responding to who God is and to what he has done, and then all of the Christian life is like that. And we were, this morning, we were praying together, and we gathered together. We do a little rally before the 9 o'clock worship gathering, and um, all of our serve team members and band and elders and so on and so forth, we gather together, and someone will bring a word, and we'll share and encourage and pray to one another. And then someone was, was talking this morning about the way that God works miracles and that miracles are never a surprise to God. You ever thought about that? Um, you know, like when, when we experience a miracle in our lives, um, somebody gets healed, um, something, something, something crazy, a check shows up in your, in, your, in your mailbox that you weren't expecting or something happens and God parts the Red Sea in your life. And, show, and we're like, can you believe what God done? Like what God is, that's amazing. We're like high-fiving one another. We're like, wow, that is crazy. But God is never surprised by miracles. Like he, he's never surprised by miracles. He's like, yep, I did about a million of those today. Yep. You're just one of many. Our God is a miracle-working God. And, and here's the crazy miracle. Here's the crazy story about Christmas. And this is how you know a man didn't make this up. That God would become a man. That God would become a human. That God would become a fetus and actually be born into humanity for us. And, and, and then, you got to, then you got to ask the question, as I did this week, um, why did God do it that way? If God is God and has infinite possibilities in which he can accomplish his purposes and plans, why does he do it the way that he decides to do it? You ever thought that? Like, all right, God, um, why couldn't you, you, like, you had to become a human? <laughs> that's, a, that's a little dramatic, God. All right, I mean, there could have been another way. Like, why did you have to do it that way? I mean, could you just send an angel or something? I mean, could you just ride it in the sky? Can't you just, like, snap your fingers and make something happen? Like, why did, you ever thought, ever wondered that? Why did you become a man? Like, why did God become a man? And, and then if you understand anything about God, you understand that everything that he does is intentional, which means there's a purpose in why he does what he does, which means there must be a purpose, must be intentional in why he had to become a man. And so here's what I would offer you today in a short little excursus before we dive back in, why God had to become a man. I'll give you three quick reasons. And if you are a theological type, you will love this. Number one, God had to become man for identification. Identification, and I'll break that down for you for just a moment. The story of God and the story specifically of the Old Testament is the story of God trying and coming and working and purposing, coming to dwell with his people. You look through the Old Testament, there's a tabernacle that is built and that's constructed, and you see the temple that's built and that's constructed, and you see these are moments within God's people in which he's coming, and these are places where he's bringing his presence into his people, right? 
God's trying to come and to dwell with us. You could say in the Old Testament that God's trying to tabernacle among his people. He's trying to come and live among his people. I love the way that N.T. Wright talks about this um, in John 1, uh, 14. I'll put it on the screens for you. John 1, 14, it says it uh, this way. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word, this is the word, this is actually God. This is the name for Jesus. This is the word of God, the Logos, the, the Jesus Christ himself. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word there for dwelt, it can also be translated tabernacled. That Jesus came and tabernacled among us. N.T. Wright says it this way. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. With the word in question echoing both the Greek and Hebrew for tent. The tabernacling of God, the glorious presence of God with his people, like fire itself, dangerous yet full of delight. And the word made flesh is then introduced to us as the true king, the Messiah, Jesus. See, God had to become a man for identification. God has always been working a story in which he has wanted to dwell among his people. And in the act of the incarnation, we have the greatest tabernacling of God ever in the story of Jesus Christ. And then if we were to fast forward to the very end of the story, when you think about heaven, when you think about the future, Revelation 21 verse 3 says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is John, a loud voice saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and he will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Here's the truth today. God, for all of history, has been aiming and trying to dwell with you. God forever has been trying to, you could say, get close to you. God has been on a pursuit, even when you didn't recognize it and even when you didn't understand it, God has been in pursuit of you. He's been in pursuit of you. And in the Advent story in Christmas, we see that God becoming a man is the ultimate, the ultimate demonstration of his tabernacling and his wanting to dwell among us. God had to become a man first because of identification. Anybody like that point, by the way? I love that point. Um, God also not only had to become man because of identification, but here's, we'll take it a step further, because of exemplification. Big word, I'll explain it for you. As that exemplify means to be an example, to demonstrate, to have an example, not just a example, but the example. If you were to look at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 17, we would see that just as Adam came into the world as a representative of humanity, Adam would not do what he was supposed to do, and so Jesus would come and redo what Adam was supposed to do. You see it even this way in Romans chapter 5, um, beginning in verse 16, he would say this. Actually, let's back up to verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. We'll fast forward to verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, Adam, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You could say it this way, Jesus, you could say God had to become man for exemplification to redo what we could not do. 
He had to live the life that we could not live. He had to meet the moral requirements and the standards of God's law that we could not meet. And he lived them for us. He demonstrated what we were supposed to demonstrate that we could not. And Jesus came. He had to become a man. He had to become he enter human history in order to meet the requirements that we could not meet. He, became, he came to live the life that you should have lived, that you could not live. He had to come as exemplification to demonstrate what we were supposed to live. And then number three, God had to become man for substitution. God had to become man for substitution. I love the way that David Mathis says it. He says it this way. Jesus didn't just become man because he could. This was no circus stunt, just for show. He became man in the world of the ancient creed for us and for our salvation. The eternal word, uh, Word became frail human flesh and blood to save us from our sin and to free us to marvel at and enjoy the unique union and divinity and humanity in his one spectacular person. God had to become man for substitution. If God had only become man because of exemplification, that would have only accomplished half of what you needed you not only needed someone to live the life that you could not live, but you also needed someone to die the death that you should have died. Jesus had to come as a man in order to accomplish your substitution. As Paul would say it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, though he was in the form of God, Jesus Christ, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped or to hold on to, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus became a man to take on himself the injustice we deserve. He came as your substitution. I want you to think about this with me for a moment. The idea of, of, of substitution is, um, is actually all over our story, all over our story, all over our culture. Um, songs are sung about substitution, someone taking someone else's place in order so that they could be free, taking on pain, taking on agony, taking on someone's loss and so that they could experience freedom. Uh, films, movies are created, are written and produced because of this. Um, makes me think of the greatest film of all history, Beauty and the Beast. And my favorite movie of all time, you can just ask my girls, I can't, seriously, I've, I've, I've watched it so, so many times. But there's a, there's a scene, um, don't hate, there's a scene where, um, where Belle's father is, he's off on his journey and he, he gets lost, he gets sidetracked, he finds his way into the, the, the castle of, of, of this beast and he, he steals um, a rose as he is exiting the um, the, the beast the castle and uh, the beast takes him prisoner and takes him captive for stealing from him and puts him in the prison um, bars behind prison bars up on the I believe it's the east tower yeah. I've watched it a lot I've watched it a lot um, and then and then Bell 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 makes her way to the castle she finds her father and um, she's there and she's met with the, the beast and her father, and the beast says, because of this penalty, because of this transgression, there is an e eternal um, consequence and punishment for her father, and that um, someone must pay the penalty. And she says, well, w wouldn't you at least let uh, a daughter kiss her father goodbye for the last time? And so he opens the bar, the doors of the 
prison and she walks in and she grabs her father and lets him know that she loves him and she kisses him and embraces him and then she thrusts him outside of the prison and closes the door behind him, locking herself inside the cage. That's substitution. It was his penalty, it was his mistake, it was his responsibility that he should pay for, but she stepped in his place and took it on for himself so that he could be free. It's substitution, it's all over the place, which makes me realize that you and I are actually wired for the gospel. You and I are actually wired for this news of substitution, that you and I should recognize that when someone steps in the gap and takes on your punishment and your penalty and gives you something you don't deserve, there should be something in your heart that worships and that gets loud because of what you experience in the gospel. It means that you were wired for the gospel. And this is the gospel, that Jesus not only came for your exemplification to live the life that you should have lived, he actually came for your substitution and he went to the cross that was meant for you. Jesus Christ, metaphorically speaking, opened up the prison bars, grabbed you, embraced you, and threw you out of the prison bars and locked himself inside so that you could be free. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Jesus couldn't have done that in a distant galaxy. Jesus had to become a man. He had to become a man, and he had to do what you were supposed to do. It's substitution. And we think about the Advent story and we think about this Christmas season, we would be remiss if we just eat a lot of food and exchange a few presents at Christmas without recognizing that our ability to rejoice hinges not on whether or not our family is having a good time around the Christmas tree, but the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for us in our behalf and that we have the ability to rejoice even in light of whatever circumstances and situations that we go through. And I love this about Mary, and I love this about you and me, is that rejoicing actually supersedes your circumstances. It gives you the ability to rest and to stand in a truth and a reality that is true regardless of what your circumstances are. This means that your circumstances can't touch it. It supersedes it. And so Mary, um, in response to this amazing announcement, in response to this amazing news. Um, This is how she responds, and we've done this all three weeks in a row for a reason, because I want you to feel this, and I want you to see this, and I want you to hear this. She sings a song. She writes a song back to the Lord, and it says this in verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, which by the way, if you have experienced the gospel, the only logical response is to magnify the Lord for what he's done on your behalf. How could you not? Magnify the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy, she's declaring his mercy, is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She's claiming a promise of God that God's mercy is for her. Verse 51. And he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and he has exalted those of humble estate. She's declaring the promises of God in her her life and in her situation. He exalts those who are low. Verse 53, and he has filled the hungry with good things. She's just declaring and speaking and standing on the promises of God. He fills the hungry with good things, which means he supplies what you need. 
He supplies what you need, and he fills you with what you need in order to be full. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has helped his servant Israel. It just means God helps. God helps. God shows up. God steps in. He steps into the gap. He steps into the moments, and he steps into the situations, and he helps. He's a God who helps. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. It's her song of praise, her song of rejoicing based on who God is and on his promises. I want to ask you this morning, do you know that God has promises for you today? God has promises for you, similar to Mary's promises that she sings, that she writes down, that she holds on to. You ever written down the promises of God in your life, by the way? You have to know the promises of God in order to stand on the promises of God. You got to read the promises of God in order to live them out in your own life. And Mary writes them down and she sings them. She turns them into worship songs and she declares them over her life. And she believes and she holds on to the promises that God would have for her. I want you to know today and I want you to believe that God has promises for you. It doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter what addiction has crippled your life. It doesn't matter what kind of financial mess that you've been in. It doesn't matter what kind of relational disaster you have experienced, that God has promises for you and for your life. That God is a promising God. And regardless of what you're going through, you can stand on the promises of God. Did you know, um, you could say it this way as well, that God is for you? You ever thought about that? God is for you? How many, anybody else in the room uh, like it when somebody is for them? <laughs> um, anybody ever had somebody against them before? You ever had somebody against you? I've never experienced that. I'm a pastor. I don't, I don't know what that <laughs> means to have somebody that is um, against you. Check one, two, three. There we go. All right, we good. We got power. We got power. Everybody put your hands together for power in the house. Power in the house. Uh, what I was saying is um, no one is ever against me, you know. Um, yeah. You know, being a, um, being a leader isn't always fun. Uh, being a leader means that you got a bigger target than perhaps other people that are around you which means that you uh, have situations and circumstances in which people are for you, but you also have situations and circumstances in which people are against you. You know, it, it's good to have people around you that are for you. Hey, could you turn to your neighbor, the person beside you, and just say, I'm for you? Doesn't that, doesn't that do something in you? Some of you, it's been years since anyone has ever told you that. And the beauty of the community of faith and Christians, we're for one another, by the way. We're not against one another. We're for one another. Um, but here's the greatest reality and the greatest truth. It doesn't matter who is for or against you because God is for you. God is for you. He is for you today. He is not scheming against you today. He's not trying to uh, plan out your life in the most devastating and destructive way possible. He is actually for you. 
He's working for your good and for his glory. That's the business that he is in, which means we can, we can stand today on the promises of God, recognizing that God is for us and that he has good things in store for us. And I know that some of you are at the bottom today. Some of you are in a pit, and some of you, your just situation is upside down. And I know that I, I wish I could just snap my fingers today and make it, make it go right side up for you. And I don't always have the ability to do, well, I don't usually have the ability to do that, rather. Um, but regardless of what you I want you just to believe that, um, that God is for you um, today. And if nothing else, that is worth rejoicing. It's worth rejoicing. And we're going to be a, a people of rejoicing. I'll, I'll say it this way. It's my last point. Um, we are people of the promise. We're people of the promise. If anybody ever tells you otherwise, tell them they're wrong. Um, we're people of the promise, which means God's in charge. He's the only one that makes promises and actually keeps them all the time. And whatever he says will happen, whatever he promises will come true, whatever he declares will be done. That's tweetable right there. <laughs> whatever he declares will be done. And so we rejoice. And so I want you, I want you this, this year, I want you this season, I want you as we end 2018 to, uh, to be in a place where you, can, where you can rejoice, where you can rejoice and even in your life and even in your, in your moment, more than all your bills paid and more than all your relationships happy, you need rejoicing in your life. You need rejoicing in your life to be able to rejoice for what the Lord has done for you and what he has already promised and declared over your life. Amen? Amen. Father, we just um, praise you today, and we do rejoice for who you are and for what you have done. And um, God, I just, um, I just ask that you would help us to be um, the people that, that rejoice, that this is characteristic of who we are and what you would have for us um, in our lives. And I pray that you would just, I pray that you would touch us today. Um, whoever needs a touching from the Lord today, whoever needs to feel you today, whoever needs you in their life, I pray that you would um, touch us today and that you would meet us where we are because we're here for you, God. We're here for you and we're desperate for you. And if it wasn't for you, I don't know what we would do. And so we're here for you and we love you. And we we say this in Jesus' good name, amen, amen.